Acts chapter 26. Starting at verse 1, Then Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jews all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. This is the promise our twelve tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. O king, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. Let's pray. Lord God, open our minds to see your truth this morning. Help us, Lord, to ask ourselves the right questions, the questions that your Spirit has placed into your word for us to consider. Father, we thank you for your son. We celebrate your son. and We love your son. We pray in his name. Amen. As you'll remember, I hope from last week, that we are in the midst of uh, Paul's testimony, Acts chapter 26. He's actually giving a defense of himself uh, in front of King Agrippa. Uh, But more than that, and I want you to remember this, more than that, he's giving a testimony about what Jesus Christ has done for him. He's giving a testimony that what he teaches is in accord with what the Jews expected or should have expected from the Old Testament, from the prophets, from the fathers. And so that's that's what Paul's doing here. We looked last week at the introduction, Paul's introduction, verses 1 to 3. We looked at Paul's past in Judaism, verses 4 to 8. We looked at his persecution of Christianity in verses 9 to 11. And now we begin this morning at verse 12. And verses 12 to 15 is Paul's conversion. Verses 12 to 15 is Paul's conversion. Now there are three key thoughts, and I I want to remind you of this from last week. Charles Erdman shares them. Number one... Uh, Three key thoughts in Paul's testimony here. Uh, Number one, faith in a risen divine Christ is the heart of Christianity. You can't miss that as you go through this defense and Paul's other defenses, that the heart of Christianity is what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ, a risen divine Savior. Second key thought is that the resurrection is attested by competent human witnesses. There are those who saw Jesus Christ alive 
from the dead, Paul being one of them, and he's about to share his experience of seeing Christ alive from the dead, seeing the resurrected Christ as we go through this passage. Uh, the third thing that we want to see, the third key thought here, is that the message of salvation is intended for all of humankind. The message of salvation is intended for all of humankind. Now, as we go through this, uh, the, the thought came to me as I was thinking about how, how is it that you and I missed it? What do I mean by that? I mean that there was a time when we didn't believe this either. There was a time when we were like Agrippa. There were a time when we were like Festus. We didn't believe in Jesus Christ. We didn't understand that he was alive from the dead. We hadn't put our faith in him. And then something happened, right? Something happened and our lives changed and we understood who Jesus was, that he is God incarnate, the Son of God, that he went to Calvary's cross and bore your sins and my sins on that cross, that he died, that death couldn't hold him, and he's resurrected from the dead. But there was a time in each of our lives when we didn't buy that. We didn't believe it. We were kind of like the Paul before salvation. And I thought about that, and I thought, now, what, what, how can I illustrate that? And this may be a really terrible illustration, okay? You can tell me later. Uh, but when we were kids uh, in school and we were studying science, uh, you guys may have had this happen in your studies. Uh, maybe not. I don't know. We looked at a chart for colorblindness. Anybody know, remember what I'm talking about? It was a, a round circle with all kinds of colored dots in it. And embedded in those colored dots was a number. If you could see the number, you were not colorblind. If you could not see the number, you were colorblind. And that's kind of like before we come to faith. Before we come to faith in Christ, we can't see the number. It's there, but we just can't see it. We can't see it. When we come to Christ, we cannot not see it. Does that make sense? We cannot not see it? <laughs> that's, that's the difference. Or to use a, a similar illustration, you've seen those pictures within pictures. They're usually pencil drawings. And there's a, a wider picture that you're looking at and somebody says to you, do you see the so-and-so in that picture? It's maybe an animal, it may be a person. Do you see that? He said, I don't see it, I don't see it, I can't see it. And then all of a sudden it comes into focus and there's the other picture within the picture. You ever notice how after you finally see it, you can't not see it again? <laughs> That's what I think it illustrates what Paul is sharing here. That there's a time when he didn't see it. But it was there. He just didn't understand. And that's true for unbelievers today. That's true for unbelievers today. They reject the truth. They say, I don't see the number. It's not there. But it is there. It is there. And Paul was commissioned by God to take that message to unbelievers that Christ died for them. They don't see it. Agrippa didn't see it. Festus didn't see it. Festus thought Paul was nuts. Agrippa said, you know, Paul, uh, 
ha, 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 you think that you can talk me into this. They didn't see it. Paul's talking about a time when he didn't see it. When he didn't see it. So we're going to see that as we go through this this morning. A couple of things we're going to try to answer. I hope we get through them. Uh, question, is Paul promoting a work salvation in this passage? He talks about us doing works, meet for repentance, so to speak. Uh, is he promoting a work salvation? And just so you know the answer beforehand, no. Okay? Second question, what part does repentance play in salvation? Does it play a part? What part does it play? The third question is, what is repentance biblically? What is it biblically? So let's get into uh, all of these things. The first, verses 12 to 18, in one of these journeys, Paul tells us, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests about noon, O king. As I was on the road, I saw light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now, only... What happened on Damascus Road, only this encounter that Paul had with Jesus Christ, only this encounter that Paul had with the risen, glorious Jesus Christ, only that encounter could explain what happened to Paul, could explain the change in his life, could explain uh, uh, how he went from a, a murderous opponent of the church to being its chief proponent from a murderous opponent of the church to being its chief proponent. Only the Damascus Road experience, only what happened on Damascus Road to explain that, could explain that. Jesus says to Paul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Boy, is that a misunderstand phrase. A misunderstood phrase. So many people try to make it, well, well, Paul had guilt feelings about what he was doing, and all the while he was going after and, and persecuting believers and even voting to have them put to death. All that time, he was violating his conscience, and he felt that he was violating his conscience because he was persecuting believers. That is not so. That's not what it means when it says you're kicking against the goads. That was a common phrase. The picture was, a goad was a sharpened stick that was used to direct an ox. And what Jesus was saying to him, as one writer explained, is this was a Greek phrase which meant to oppose deity. In other words, God was trying to capture Paul, and Paul was doing all he could to be not to be captured. He wasn't feeling bad about what he was doing to believers. He wasn't feeling bad about the persecution. He wasn't having guilt feel, feelings. Rather, Jesus says, hard for you to oppose God, isn't it, Paul? It's hard for you to oppose God. Well, Paul, in these moments, exchanged his religion for a relationship. Do you remember when you did that? 
You remember when you did that? You may not remember the moment. I don't remember the exact, I can't give you a day, date, an hour, and minute, and second that I put my faith in Jesus Christ. But I remember generally when it was, and I remember what happened to me and what brought me to that moment. And I remember that moment when I exchanged my religion for a relationship. When I exchanged my religion for a relationship. And that's what Paul did here. Well, verses 16 to 18, we have Paul's commission, his call to the ministry. Uh, We read in verse 16, Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. Underline those two words, servant and witness, because they identify, they are the central words of Paul's life. They are the central words of Paul's life. Servant, witness. Paul was a servant of all people. Paul was a servant of the church. Paul was a witness, one who points people to, people to another. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness. So do you see here that Jesus Christ appeared to Paul, therefore Paul has seen the risen Christ, which therefore qualifies him to be a what? An apostle. It qualifies him to be an apostle. He has seen the risen Christ. Verse 17, I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes, turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith. Now there's the answer to our first question. Is Paul promoting a works salvation because he says that we ought to produce works that show our repentance? No, he's not. Because here he makes it clear. So that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified. How? First of all, what does sanctified mean? Set apart. apart. All right, give yourself an A. (laughs) Uh, anybody else want an A this morning come on Uh, okay (laughs) Uh, sanctified means set apart set apart when Paul uses it in this context is set apart to God set apart to God and so is Paul promoting a work salvation absolutely not he says among those who are set apart to God how by faith in me Salvation is always by grace, through faith, not of ourselves, not by works, so that no one can boast. No one will be in heaven saying, I deserve to be here. We will be in heaven and we will say, oh God, thank you for being gracious to me, a sinner. Thank you for being gracious to me, a sinner. God calls Paul to the ministry of this message. God calls Paul to the ministry of this message. This is Paul's commission. Paul's preaching was not a self-imposed task. 
but was a, it was an obedience to a commission from God. Paul's preaching wasn't self-imposed. He didn't decide, well, you know what? I'm a pretty good teacher. I've learned a lot of stuff along the way. I guess I will be a messenger for God. And commissioned himself. No, Paul didn't do that. Paul's preaching was not a self-imposed task, but it was obedience to a commission. God had called him. God had set him apart. God had gifted him to be used in this way. One writer said, these verses are couched in words which each follower of Christ does well to keep in mind as he today looks out upon a world in darkness and misery and sin. You know what? I, I think we're, we're going through days right now where I, I think that we have no illusions about the darkness and misery and sin in this world, do we? There are times, though, when we do. There are times when we look out in the world and there are times when we look out on unbelievers and we feel like the psalmist in Psalm 73, I don't understand, Lord, why are you prospering the rich? Doesn't pay to be a believer. There are times when we look out upon the world and that's what we think. But listen, when you and I look out upon the world, we have to see that the, the world of unbelievers are in darkness. The world of unbelievers are in misery. The world of unbelievers are in sin. And don't let anybody tell you that sin delivers what it promises. Because it doesn't. It doesn't. Oh, it's pleasant for a season. Even the scripture agrees with that. And then you pay the piper. Then you pay the piper. Warren Wiersbe said, lost sinners are in spiritual darkness and only Christ can give them light. Now you say, well, that's all fine and good. What does that have to do with me? I'm not commissioned. Mm -hmm. You think you're not? Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Written to the church. Are you a believer? You're part of the church go in the world go into all the world preach the gospel make disciples baptizing teaching them you say well that's that's to the church generically that's not to me and personally well john 17 18 to 20 i don't have time to turn here please write it down john 17 18 to 20 where jesus in his high priestly prayer Praise for the, his immediate circle of disciples. This is, this is the night before his crucifixion. And in his high priestly prayer, he says to God, I don't only pray for these, meaning those that are right around me, these disciples of mine, these apostles of mine, I pray for all who will believe through them. See, we have a commission in that commission. So you and I are commissioned to the gospel ministry. You and I are commissioned to the gospel ministry. Well, the world around us 
is trapped. The unbelieving world around us is trapped. It's trapped in the darkness of sin, darkness of selfishness, darkness of wrong motives, darkness of wrong priorities, darkness of wrong actions. Under the power of Satan, who is the destroyer and the liar. Satan, who is the destroyer and a liar. And we have come so far in our own nation in darkness that we are calling evil good and calling good evil. But the world is trapped. It's trapped in darkness, the darkness of selfishness and wrong motives and wrong priorities and wrong actions. Verse 18 is a summary of what Christ does for such a person. Such a person as me. Because I once walked in darkness. I once walked in selfishness and wrong motives and wrong priorities and wrong actions. And by the way, I didn't reach perfection yet. Still do walk in some of those things. But now I have been given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Oh, what a glorious thought. Well, the summary of what Christ does for a person is verse 18. The unsaved are living in darkness. Christ places them in the light. They now can see the number that was there the whole time. They now can see the drawing within the drawing that was there the whole time. He places them in light, their eyes open, their eyes no longer in darkness, able to see new realities, glorious realities. Hallelujah! What realities you and I are able to see as believers in Christ. The unsaved are living under the power of Satan. Jesus Christ frees them from the power of Satan and the power of the flesh. The unbeliever, the unsaved needs the forgiveness of sin. Jesus Christ offers the forgiveness of sin. Unbelievers receive a new status when by faith they put their trust in Jesus Christ. They are positionally seen by God as perfect in Christ and set apart to God. That's what Jesus Christ does for a person. Verses 19 to 23, we see Paul's obedience. So then King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea and to the Gentiles also. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds That is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I have had God's help to this very day, and so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Christ would suffer, and as the first to to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles." Paul says, I proclaimed the truth. I proclaimed this message. I preached that they should repent. Now, 
What, what is repentance, biblical repentance? I tell you what, there is such a mystifying... I, I, I like the New Living Translation. I don't want to get off on too far a tangent here. I like the New Living Translation of the Scripture. But you have to understand when you read that, you have to understand that it is a translation slash paraphrase. That's the best way I can describe it. A translation slash paraphrase. It's great for a reading Bible. It is awful for a study Bible. In other words, if you have a New Living Translation, use it, read it, enjoy it, but don't use it for your study Bible. You need a more word-for-word translation, such as the NIV or the New American Standard uh, and some of the newer Bibles that that are word-for-word better translations. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. I've been reading the passage this morning, Acts 26, in the NLT. I like to do that to get a broad perspective of how translators see it being translated. And where they come to this section, I preach that they should repent. That's what it says in the NIV. But in the NLT, it says, inexplicably, I cannot understand it for the life of me, it says that they should repent of their sin. Now, I looked in the Greek text. Guess what? Of their sin. It's not there. It's not there. What the translator did is brought his bias into it. The translator brought his bias into it. It must be, this is repent, it must be repent of my sins. Do you know that unbelievers are never called in the Bible to repent of their sins, but believers are? Unbelievers are never called to repent of their sins, but believers are. What does the word repent mean? What is repentance? Repentance is metanoieo in Greek. Metanoia, noun version. And it simply means to change directions. To change directions. To change one's mind is the idea. To change one's mind about who Jesus is. To change one's mind about the direction of our lives. To understand that Jesus Christ is God incarnate. The one who died for you and who died for me. To change our minds about him. To change our minds about what's important in life. That's what repentance is. And then Paul says, that change, that change about well, how you think of Jesus Christ, that, think, that change from religion to relationship, that change should show in your life. Now, people get all uptight about that. No. Shouldn't it change in your life? In my, shouldn't it show in your life and my life? that we've had a time in our lives when we changed our minds about Jesus Christ and we realize now that he is God incarnate, we realize that he is the only provision God has made for our sin. He is the only way that we can be a part of God's family. He is the only way that we can put, be in, 
heaven for all eternity. He is the only way. Shouldn't that make a difference how we live? Why does somebody get uptight over that? Why does somebody get uptight when we say your life should change? If you have come to know Jesus Christ as Savior, you should be a different person today than you were that day. Now let me, let me try to get a few things in here. One writer said, none more firmly than Paul rejected works before or after conversion as a ground of salvation, none more firmly demanded good works as a consequence of salvation. I love that. Paul would be the first to tell you you can't be saved by works, you can't be sanctified by works, but he would also be the first to tell you that is that good works are a consequence of salvation. That's what, that's what Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 say. God saved us to do works that He set us apart to do. That's verse 10. We quote verses 8 and 9 of Ephesians 2. Let's go on to 10. <clears throat> Another writer said, the proof of genuine repentance and turning to God is a certain kind of life, but these deeds are not merely the reaction of someone whose life is governed by a new series of laws. They are the result of a new love. Boy, don't you like that? You, you, now, you now know how much Jesus Christ loved you and how much he loved me, and shouldn't that make a difference in how we live and think? The writer goes on to say they are the result of a new love. The man who has come to know the love of God in Jesus Christ knows now that if he sins, he does not only break God's law, he breaks God's heart. So Paul wasn't disobedient to the vision Verses 24 to 29, we see the verdict. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. <laughs> what? You believe that a person can be raised from the dead in the power of God and your great learning is making you nuts, Paul. One writer said, Festus typifies all people too committed to the natural world to leave room for the supernatural. The sad thing is, as some have pointed out, is sometimes we hide our faith or we hide our truths so as not to appear not to be intellectual. We want to be accepted as we are erudite. We are intellectual. We don't want to be classed with those holy rollers. 
We don't want to stand out because we believe in what the Scripture says about Jesus Christ. I like what one writer said, but the festuses of this world need to answer one question. If belief in a resurrection is mad, what have they to lose by trusting Christ? If belief in a resurrection is not mad, what have they to gain? That's kind of like the question the folks who led me to Christ, to, to put my faith in Christ, asked me. They said, if we are wrong, what have we lost? But if you are wrong, what have you lost? Boy, that question reverberated in my mind. If we're wrong, what have we lost? But if you're wrong, what have you lost? Festus, if Paul is wrong, what would you have lost to put your faith in his Christ? But if he's right, what are you giving up? And that's a question that every unbeliever needs to be asked. Well, you know what happens. Festus calls Paul crazy. Agrippa says, do you think in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? That's pretty much what the text means there. Can do you think you can talk me into it in such a short time? It's almost a joke on the part of Agrippa. Isn't this world a funny world? You can pursue wealth and position. You can pursue fame with all that's in, all that's in you. And the world won't think you mad. They will envy you. They will imitate you. They will emulate you. They will honor you. But share the gospel and you're considered mad, simple, uneducated, intolerant. Let me close with this. Paul said, I wish that you were like I am except for these chains. And G. Campbell Morgan said, he would give them his freedom but not his chain, his joy but not his pain. Contrast that with the man as he was when first we met him. He was then breathing, threatening, and slaughter, and all his fierceness then was the outcome of his honest devotion to what he believed to be the truth. Before Agrippa, he was nonetheless honest, intense, or devotion, devoted, but he was a new man in Christ Jesus, and therefore his desire for those opposing was not that they should be imprisoned, but that they should be free. Not that they should be put to death, but that they should find life. This is always the result of fellowship with Christ. Read verses 30 and 32, and once again, Paul's innocence is affirmed now for the fourth time. Let's pray. Lord, th thank you for Paul's testimony. Thank you for how it challenges us to live out the truth that we have put our faith in. Examine each of us, Father, for that truth. In Jesus' name, amen.